Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and the benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Fahim Kadir. Dr. Fahim Kadir is the Vice Provo and the Dean of the School of Graduate Studies at Queen's and a professor in the Department of Global Development Studies. His research specializes in international development, international relations, and international political economy. In particular, Dr. Kadir focuses on South-to-South cooperation, emerging donors, aid effectiveness, good governance, democratic consolidation, transnational social movements, and human security. He's also served as the president of the Canadian Consortium for University Programs in International Development. Hello, Dean Kadir. I'm thrilled that you are with us today on Blind Date with Knowledge. There's so much I want to talk about. I'm particularly interested in, in having you explain a little bit about concepts like civil society and cosmopolitan citizenship in a way that a general citizen could understand. Maybe we could begin there. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, de- I'm delighted and honored to be on the show. Before getting into the discussion of civil society and cosmopolitan citizenship, both of them um, are really the focal points for my research and teaching for a very long period of time. I just wanted to say a thing or two about myself as a researcher. Uh, I see myself as a student of development uh, who is deeply, keenly interested in understanding the dynamic of social change. And uh, I'm interested in also understanding the underlying causes of poverty and underdevelopment. And I don't see poverty as a phenomena involving only developing countries. It's a transnational phenomena. Poverty can be seen everywhere, including right here in Kingston. So my research is about producing knowledge. Hmm. It is about producing new knowledge that addresses some of the pressing challenges facing the world today. And it is about producing knowledge that serves the greater public good. So I step outside of the, the normal realm of research in order to promote some ideas um, around issues that are significant, that are fundamentally important for the larger community. I think civil society is one of them. Uh, in the last about 20, 25 years, civil society has become a popular subject for discussion. So without getting into any of the theoretical discussions of what civil society is all about, or dealing with some of the very different perspectives, contenting perspectives on it, I would probably say a thing or two about civil society. Um, it is about a non-state space. It is about organizations that work independent of both the state and the market, and they strive to protect and promote the interest of different groups. So civil society groups would become part of the larger discussion around democracy, development, environmentalism, justice, uh, and the list goes on. Now, when you said they, who does they refer to? Is that the various groups themselves, or are you anticipating or contemplating that there is some proto-state that will be formed? 
would get into the discussion of civil society in a, in a minute or two. In, in a layman term, when we refer to civil society, we indeed mean non-state organizations. These are associations uh, that are formed by ordinary citizens. They are not either the part of the state or directly involved in promoting business ventures. They are part of the social realm where they, these organizations work with ordinary citizens, work in the interest of ordinary citizens, represent their voices in the decision-making processes. Hmm. And on the other hand, the other issue, the, the, the issue of cosmopolitan citizenship, uh, which in fact is, is, is a bigger project for me and many of my colleagues to undertake, is about bringing people together. It is about making sure that we can create an inclusive social order, a non-repressive inclusive social order where different ethno-religious groups can transcend their so-called dividing principles and become part of a common humanity. And it's a normative project where different groups would be able to construct an identity for the larger humanity and promote the ideas of development that benefits not one group or two, but rather the, the larger community. Right. Now, I'm a little bit familiar with John Rawls and, and yeah. theory of justice and the concept of if you don't know what your religion is, if you don't know what your state affiliation is, and you're, ju you're just forced to interact with other people, your concept of, of inclusiveness and power relationship is going to be different than if you had those affiliations. But how do, how do you move from uh, 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 sort of the real world to uh, expanding inclusivity? How do you make people more tolerant of each other? It's a complex process. In my research, I use a term called realistic utopia. Hmm. So I think often as a researcher, particularly those who are interested in greater sociopolitical change, will be engaged in the construction of a research project that is about weaving dreams, hmm. dreams that can be realized. It's not something that you have to constantly discuss in pure abstract terms. So I think cosmopolitan citizenship is one of those concepts, a normative one, guided by the principles of equality, equity, justice, environmental sustainability. But it is a concept that creates an opportunity for us to rethink of our identity as individuals, whether I'm a faculty member at Queens, I'm a researcher or a development activist, I have a common agenda to pursue, a collective vision to pursue. And it can be done in, in three or four very distinct ways, although conceptually it's thick, very dense, but you can break it down into areas where people could see the benefits of becoming part of a larger community. And that can be done. Uh, and I think the three different things that we expect uh, can be handled, can be promoted. One of which is to allow people to appreciate the need for each of us to rise above our own identity, either as 
a male or a female or whether or not I have any gender binary or I'm an old, young, whatever the identity I have or whatever the geographical affiliation I do have or an institutional affiliation. And if I'm allowed to see something beyond my own sounding, then it becomes easier for me to appreciate the need for me to become part of a common humanity. And it's happening. People are in different parts of the world beginning to realize that the geographical boundaries, for instance, should prevent them from constructing a global identity. But in the last, I think I would say about three decades or so, women's groups, uh, farmers, and many other groups, the labor unions, have began to appreciate the importance of building an identity that goes beyond their national uh, geographical boundaries and it's happening so that is a possibility we often see and the second thing what it does is is uh, it creates an opportunity for people to know that by creating a cosmopolitan framework of decision making or concept of citizenship we would really be able to avoid the anxieties faced by different groups particularly minorities they may be excluded from their participation in the economy as full citizens. Or even if they're allowed to participate in the economy, we know their participation often does not um, benefit them the way it benefits me, for instance. So the, the possibility of creating a structure that allows everyone to realize their full potential is exciting in itself. Mm -hmm. I think that is, is really important. And the third aspect of it is the, the focus of, I would say, post-secondary education, liberal education. We know that we are currently engaged in a serious conversation about the purpose of post-secondary education, not just here in Canada, if you travel south of the border or anywhere, anywhere else in Europe, you'd see that discussion is happening, is taking a kind of concrete shape. But the fundamental question one has to ask is the, the question of creating citizenship through education, what educational institutions can and should and must do. And in my view, when we engage ourselves as educators in the process of teaching, learning, and research, we take on the responsibility for uh, supporting our students next generation learners to become a critical thinker. So they would develop uh, the, the need or the skill set, I would say, uh, to become empathetic. And they would not really put someone into the category of what you call the other. So at the education, the critical thinkers should build empathy and avoid the, the distinction between us and them, themselves or them. I think that is one of the critical things that education can do. The second aspect of it is the need for us to appreciate cultural diversity. Liberal education can often deliver that, can, can create an environment where we would appreciate cultural pluralism instead of just looking at a particular frame for our thinking would be open to all kinds of possibilities and cosmopolitan citizenship allows us to start thinking of a project of education that creates the opportunity for us to think differently.
think about pluralism, think about inclusivity and diversity. The third aspect I think of education, I think is becoming more and more important in the current global political economy. Um, in fact, we, if I could say, we are now living in a world that is imperfect. And we see the signs of deprivation. We see the signs of exclusion, marginalization. Education can change that. Post-secondary education can help us slowly develop a different kind of understanding of knowledge, understanding of the world. And it can really allow us to discover uh, and tell the truth. If we can do it, then we should be able to belong to a common humanity. That is really the, the purpose of the concept of what we call a cosmopolitan citizenship. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Fahim Kadir, Vice Provo and Dean of the School of Graduate Studies at Queen's, and also a professor in the Department of Global Development Studies. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Fahim, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you very much for tuning in. Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Janet Jell. The people that I partner with right now on the research are actually reshaping how we think about shared decision-making, which has huge uptake in mainstream medicine and, and um, healthcare. And I'm finding that the community partners are actually bringing expertise and sort of rounding out our thinking about shared decision-making as a relational process. Dr. Jahl is an occupational therapist and assistant professor at the School of Rehabilitation Therapy in the Queen's Faculty of Health Sciences. Her research focuses on developing and evaluating shared decision-making tools and approaches to support client-centered care in partnerships with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities, with a particular focus on cancer care. She also investigates how research is conducted in partnerships, specifically when those who are engaged in the production of research partner with those who contend with the real-world needs and constraints of health systems and their users. Hello, Janet. Welcome. Thank you for being on Blind Date with Knowledge. Thank you for inviting me, Barry. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Well, let's 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 dive in. Tell, I, I'm not sure 
our listeners know what shared decision-making is. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I can, yeah, because I, I think about it a lot. It's, <laughs> a, it's a big focus in my work. For sure. Um, shared decision-making is a process, and it's a process where the healthcare provider and the client, or some people say patient, but in my, my profession it's client, um, it's where the healthcare provider and the client together bring their expertise to a conversation around making the best healthcare decision for the client. That's with general populations. So my focus has been with um, particular populations who do um, do not always have opportunities to participate in decisions about their their health care, and so I've I've focused in on that on that those. So talk a little bit more about this collaborative nature. What distinguishes that from traditional methods of interaction? Yeah, yeah. So um, when you say like the typical methods of interaction, there's sort of two extremes, right? So there's the interaction where the healthcare provider tells the client, this is what you'll do, and there's really no discussion. And then the other extreme is where the client comes to the healthcare provider and says, this is what I want, you know, just write the prescription or, you know, sign me up for whatever it is that I want. And the middle ground is what shared decision making is. And I'll emphasize again that shared decision making really is a process because Every situation's different. So every client has a different decision. Every client is situated in a different context and has different healthcare needs and different health systems as well. So it really it really depends on the nature of the uh, the health issues and also the context in which the decisions are being made. So um, the really important part though is that the healthcare provider brings their expertise to the conversation and the client has an opportunity to share their views and their preferences in as part of that conversation and that's part that's part of the important decision making around the final decision and so the outcome is the decision that's best for that particular client now in this kind of a model that you're describing are you the pivot point in the health system um, like does this collaborative paradigm rest with you and then you have to sort of translate those collaborative decisions within the health system or is are the people around you kind of on the same page around collaborative decision making yeah that's that's a great question so um so as a healthcare provider um i would say it's certainly there's the onus on the healthcare provider to make sure that clients understand you know what the decision is that's being made what the options are for the decision and the risks and benefits for for those different options. I mean, that's part of informed consent. And actually, um, there's some you know a lawyer in the U.S. because this has big uptake and big interest in the U.S. because it's a litigious society. Um, a U.S. lawyer has defined it as refined informed consent, and um, it's actually legislated in one of the U.S. states. You know, you have to go through the shared decision making process and use a shared decision making tool and approach and have that documented. Um, and and also, we do that in Ontario? We don't do that in Ontario. No, it's in the U.S. Um, yeah, and then different. So and in internationally, it's got really big uptake. Um, whole health systems like Australia is currently um, working to implement shared decision-making throughout their health system for patient safety because it, you know, people are safer when they are having say in their health care. Now, so. I would think when you're, when you're doing collaborative decision-making, your clients are going to be in different state emotional states yes. they're going to be in, uh, going to have different uh, familiarity with the issues that they're confronting yes, yeah. so this col- nature of collaboration has to have a big component i would think of education and depending on where the person's at you're going to need more or less time and you're also going to be constrained by how much money is available to 
work on this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, one of the barriers to the uptake to shared decision-making in health systems is the perception um, often that there's not enough time, right? And that's what healthcare providers will say. It's great idea, but there's just not the time to do this. And actually, um, there's been a lot of research, again, with general populations around the uptake of shared decision-making and looking at particular trials of the use of shared decision-making in health systems has shown that in a few of the trials, um, it took a bit more time. In a few of the trials, it actually took less time when shared decision-making tools and approaches were used, but most of the trials showed that it actually takes the same amount of time. Hmm. So it's, it's, you know, the, the barrier around shared decision-making is really a sort of a behavior change piece, you know, and we have these health systems where we're used to doing things a certain way. And when you're a healthcare provider, you're busy and it's just, it, healthcare providers are overwhelmed. So the idea of introducing something new can be really challenging. So, um, yeah. Talk about shared decision-making within the Aboriginal communities. Yeah. How is that working? Are, are we using, are you using um, um, traditional Aboriginal methods of storytelling? How, how does this work? Yeah, yeah. well, actually, um, so, I, so I work with Indigenous partners. As you mentioned, I work with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis uh, partners. And um, my very first project was actually at um, the request of a First Nations Inuit and Métis community who had concerns about the way that members of their community were not, um, they weren't treated very well in the health system. You know, they were talked at and not engaged with. Mm -hmm. And so they thought that this would be helpful, like exploring shared decision making. And... um, we actually ended up uh, adapting a very um, popular uh, decision-making tool that is, um, you know, I, I send it out to people ask for it quite a bit because they find it's very useful in other areas of healthcare, um, not just with Indigenous populations. So, um, Can you describe what that is in a couple of sentences? Yeah, well, it's, uh, so shared decision-making is pretty straightforward, really. It's, uh, I mean, there's multiple steps. I, I could have brought one to show you today, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't. Um, but just to describe, there's really just four major steps in making, uh, going through the shared decision-making process. The first step is defining the decision. So when the client um, comes in to meet with a healthcare provider, it's really important that both the client and the healthcare provider realize what it is they're talking about. So if if the client comes in and, and thinks they're talking about how to manage hip pain, and the healthcare provider thinks they're talking about, you know, when the, the hip replacement's gonna take place, those are two very, very different conversations. So making sure people know why it is and you know, they're there with the healthcare provider and both focusing on the same, the same issue is really important. Um, the next step is identifying the options for addressing the decision. So it's really important that, that you talk through all of the options. That's mm-hmm. part of informed consent um, as a healthcare provider. Um, and sometimes there are options that a healthcare provider might not have thought of and the client might bring forward. So, for instance, um, you know, there may be uh, an approach that a client's interested that's maybe an alternative medicine. And that's very, very common in our society today. People are looking at different options, but healthcare providers don't always consider that because in their, their health, you know, their world, there are certain things that you do. And it's important that we have these conversations and people, clients feel safe bringing this forward because they may leave, you know, they may leave the, the consult and go ahead and do or use that alternative approach anyhow. So it's really important that the healthcare provider's on site and aware 
and and is having these conversations with clients. Right. Now, what about the third and fourth steps? Yeah. And so then there's the risks and benefits of each of the options. It's important to talk through those. And then the views and values of the client. Like, where do they stand with these risks and benefits? What are important to clients? Because what a healthcare provider thinks is important can be very, very different to a client. And actually, there's been um, some bigger studies done. There's one in the U.S. that was done with wealthier um, sort of... uh, general populations who are very well educated. And over 50% of the people on this bigger study said they were afraid to question their healthcare provider or to talk back because they were worried about not getting care. And so having that open conversation and talking about what is important to you with your healthcare provider is important. And it's important that healthcare providers create that safe space, you know, for people to have. I would think that that concept of identifying underlying values getting mm-hmm. at the understanding of the of the of your client is critical yes. as you said somebody could be fearful somebody could be calm somebody could be more concerned about how they're going to look somebody could be more concerned about whether or not their family could be involved or what what information they could share i mean there's got to be you know almost an infinite number of things yes. and yeah. and ways of expressing those concepts you know Absolutely. uh we're probably in the West a little bit more used to linearity and, and positivistic kind of approaches, but other people are more holistic or less linear in their thinking. And yeah. so getting yeah. at that, I think, would be very important and probably yeah. not not so easy. You know, you No, no. And I agree, like our, our health systems are very linear and very, they're biomedical. Like they're just, they have a particular um, approach to, to health and wellness. And I think throughout our society, you know, people maybe want to be considered, um, you know, more as people, you know, versus uh, an illness or a health issue. And so shared decision-making brings that that element in. And it's actually part of best practice, you know, about practicing evidence-based medicine, having the client views and values, their preferences as part of the final decision and that clinical expertise is critical. That's, That's part of the best practice model. So... Yeah. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston. We're in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guest to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So Janet, back to you. Okay. Yeah. So I actually worked as an occupational therapist for many years. I had, you know, uh, well over 10 years of of time. Um, And it was right at the very start of my work that I quickly realized that our health systems don't don't support people in the way that I had thought that they they did. Mm. And so... um, and that actually happened when I was working um, in the north and going out to remote communities. And so despite being part of this healthcare system that wasn't um, providing people with the information that they needed to make decisions, because I was noticing that clients very rarely had all the information they needed to make decisions about their health and very rarely had say in decisions about their health. So despite all of that, I found clients very, very welcoming. They still invited me to their homes. Um, and I appreciated that. And um, I would say I've carried that with me. I have a sincere wish for our health system 
to be welcoming and inclusive for everybody. So that's that's a big driver for me. It sounds like you're empowering a humanistic kind of a, a spirit in everyone you encounter. Well, maybe I would say, actually, I learn as much from the people that I work with um, or probably more. And the people that I partner with right now on the research are actually reshaping how we think about shared decision-making, which has huge uptake in mainstream medicine and, and um, healthcare. And I'm finding that the community partners are actually bringing expertise and sort of rounding out our thinking about shared decision-making as a relational process. And um, so we're really lucky. Like, we're really lucky that community partners are willing to work on this with us. And it's actually, I think, improving our health healthcare systems for everybody. Wonderful. Thank you. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Janet Chull, occupational therapist and assistant professor at the School of Rehabilitation Therapy in the Queen's Faculty of Health Sciences. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Janet, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in.